Okay, let's start by thinking about a um, systematic theology kind of can be a little bit intimidating <coughs> just from the sound of it, you know. It sounds very seminarian, right? But you actually do theology probably every week. If you ever make a statement to someone like the following, if you say... Um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. You've just participated in theology, okay? Systematic theology, essentially. Um, if you've discussed, you know, angels or heaven or those kind of things with people, then you've, you've taken part in systematic theology. So it's not as ominous as it appears with this, with this terminology. In fact, you can kind of divide this out a little bit. We know that um, lology, ology, means what? Study. Study. Technically, if we follow this back to the Greek, we get logos, right? Which means word or concept or idea. And study of or understanding what it means, the study of, and theo means God. So this is the study of God, theology is, systematic, systemic, what does that mean? Well, it means a system, doesn't it? That something's in a system. Now, it, interestingly, this has kind of become a, a word that's taboo in our culture today because we, we don't mind uh, systems when you're talking about uh, alarm systems or computer systems or electrical systems. We don't mind those because we see benefit in those things. But a lot of systems, like theology, uh, imply some sort of system of thought. And we don't like that because we like personal autonomy. We don't want to be told what we're supposed to be thinking. We don't want to feel like we're being boxed in. We like freedom, right? So we kind of push back against this a little bit. But basically what this means is it's taking theology as we find it in the Bible and gathering information according to various topics, all the information that the Bible offers about God, about his word, uh, about creation, you know, and gathering everything that the Bible says about those into uh, a collection where it can all be summarized with some key principles, some key thoughts about it that, that makes it easy to understand and comprehend. And it's exhaustive. Everything, you know, every verse that, that talks about heaven, or any text that talks about heaven or implies about the afterlife would be considered part of that systematic theology of heaven. Now, you and I, I don't have the time to sit down and do it, and you don't either. I mean, when, when I think about some of the systematic theologies that have been written, it blows my mind, you know, when you try to read those. If you've ever looked at um, one by Carl Henry, um, <clears throat> who was an editor at some point in time of the Christian in, uh, Christian Christianity Today, and his is like a six or seven volume 
you know, um, theology. And you and I are not going to invest the kind of time necessary to write six volumes of, you know, three or four hundred pages each on all of the, the basic theologies of the Bible. But we certainly could take advantage of those and should, and that's what we're going to try to do here is we let somebody else do a lot of the work for us and then we come along and try to take what they've done and build on it and affirm it, you know, and develop convictions of our own. It's one thing to sit down and look at what someone's written, but it's another thing to investigate it ourselves and to find it true, to affirm it and validate it. So, theology is a broad category with lots of subcategories. You're going to have things like Christology, You'll have which would be what? Study of Christ. Eschatology. Last things, future things. Um, Harmatiology. Harmatiology. It's the study of sin. Uh, harmatia. That's, that's the, uh, the word, the Greek word for sin that means missing the mark, meaning, you know, doing something uh, out of, uh, that's not right. So, um, uh, soteriology, study of salvation, pneumatology, mentioned that one, study of the Holy Spirit, misiology, study of missions, yeah, ecclesiology, study of the church. So, all of these are, you've got theology, and then under these, you've got these subcategories, call them specialized doctrines. Uh, in these areas. And so when you take a systematic theology, it's somebody taking all these different topics and laying them out and then going back and looking at what the Bible teaches about each one of them in total and then compiling that and summarizing that so we can understand it and we can compare them and see how they all fit together and how they're consistent and, and support one another. <clears throat> all right. Ahead of myself here. So systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Alright, so if you're a person that, you know, I'd really like to know about the end times, you know, what's going to happen in the future? What's heaven going to be like? Is Jesus coming back? Is there going to be a thousand year reign on this earth? What does he mean he's going to make new heavens and a new earth? All those things are about the future. They're about the end of the age. And if you have curiosities about those, systematic theology is where you go to find the real truth of the matter. You can go read a book that someone's written about their perceptions or their ideas, but if you want to know the truth, I mean, isn't, don't we consider the, the Bible to be God's Word? And that in itself is a doctrine. So we want to go and see what God has said about these things in total and be, and be able to summarize it and understand what He's saying about them. Sometimes we find that a lot of people have written things about uh, doctrines such as the end times that can't be corroborated in the Bible. It's not there. They make things up and add them to it because they logically think it should fit that way. Get in trouble like that, right? I've listened to Wayne Grudem lecture uh, on his systematic theology, and I, I was very impressed with him because he, as he's handling questions and answers from his class, Sometimes someone will ask a question and Wayne will say, I don't know the answer to that. The Bible, as far as I know, doesn't speak to that and answer that question. 
And people try to say, well, don't you think? And he'll say, well, we can't speak for the Bible. We can't say what the Bible doesn't say. Well, what our goal is in systematic theology is to gather everything the Bible does say and understand that, and that's as far as it goes. You know, sometimes there are clear inferences or implications, but we have to be very careful uh, about them. Now, we're going to begin the study with two basic assumptions or presuppositions. One, we're going to say that the Bible is true and that it is, in fact, our only absolute standard or truth, for truth. Okay? Anybody have a problem with that? You should leave now. If you, no, I'm just kidding. So we're going to believe the Bible is true and that it is, in fact, our only absolute standard of truth. Secondly, that the, that the God who is spoken of in the Bible exists and that He is who the Bible says He is, the Creator of heaven and earth and all things in them. So those are the two presuppositions that we're going to begin the class with. We're not going to debate those. We're going to accept those as being true. Any questions so far? Now, I said this definition in indicates that systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics and then summarizing their teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. So we'll be discussing some hard questions. We, there will be topics or issues that remain unresolved or unanswerable or unclear, such as things like election, things like male as female or man as male and female, etc. Uh, this should not halt the discussion or discourage us in any way. Uh, we take what God has given us, try to understand it the best we can, and, and move forward knowing that ultimately God is sovereign and in control, and, and if we don't understand it, it's okay. It's not going to stop things from moving forward, right? Okay. <clears throat> How about other uh, disciplines in our faith? How does systematic theology plug into that? Well, one of the, a couple, it's probably best to say it this way. There's some things that we won't be doing in this study. Uh, there's historic, I mean, uh, systematic theology. There's also historical theology. We won't be doing that. And that, that has to do with, with looking at how uh, particular doctrines were believed and accepted in particular time frames throughout history. Okay, so we're not going to be doing that. There's um, no, that's not right. Philosophical theology. Um, and what that is would be uh, coming to conclusions about theology without the Bible using man-made, man-initiated systems for thought like psychology, like philosophy, okay? Thinking deeply about these things, right? I think, therefore I am, right? Uh, there's apologetics. And we've, we've done a couple of Variations of that. What's apologetics? Anybody? Defending the faith. Okay. Apologetics has a lot to do with uh, dealing with other religions, uh, other systems of faith. You know, and how uh, they they uh, uh, conflict 
with us as Christians and what we say we believe, all right? How do we defend our faith against those other, other systems like atheism or uh, Mormonism or uh, any other ism? There's Christian ethics. Systematic theology tells us how we should think while ethics tells us how we should live. And, you know, while that's important, that's not going to be the subject of our journey um, in this class. And there's also biblical theology. Some of you guys that have Biblical theology. Anybody want to take a shot at that? Biblical theology, you can think of it this way. It focuses more on the chronological aspect of the scripture. Okay? So you would start in Genesis. And you would look in Genesis maybe for uh, what do we find in Genesis about the doctrine of prayer. You know, about prayer. And, and how did the people understand it at that time? And then you move forward in a progressive way to Exodus and, and right on through the Bible until you get to the New Testament. And so you're looking at various stops on this timeline, you know, within the confines of the Bible. This is how these doctrines unpacked and how they've evolved or changed or impacted the people at particular times. Systematic theology takes the topic and says, what does the whole Bible say about this? Biblical theology does more of a progressive chronological examination of each of those doctrines based upon the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you care? <laughs> you see a lot of, you'll also see New Testament biblical theologies. You'll see Old Testament biblical theologies, which again is kind of shrinking the timeline somewhat, but doing the same thing. And those, those become important in understanding systematic theology, but we're not going to focus on those things. We're going to stick to the systematic theology. Okay? <clears throat> I'll give you this definition that, that maybe will help make the distinction a little bit better than I just did. Here's a basic difference between systematic and biblical theology. Systematic theology asks, what does the Bible say as a whole about, say, angels? and then examines every passage that concerns angelic beings, draws conclusions, and organizes all the information into a body of truth called angelology. The final product is from Genesis to Revelation, the totality of God's revealed truth on the subject. Biblical theology, on the other hand, asks, how did our understanding of angels develop throughout biblical history? And then starts with the Pentateuch's teaching about angels, traces God's progressive revelation of these things, uh, beings throughout Scripture. Along the way, the biblical theologian draws conclusions about how people's thinking about angels may have changed as more and more truth was revealed. The conclusion of such a study is, of course, an understanding of what the Bible has to say about angels, but it also places that knowledge in the context of the bigger picture of God's whole revelation. Biblical theology helps us see the Bible as a unified whole rather than as just a mere collection of unrelated doctrinal points. Questions? It gets better as we dig into it, okay? Think about, start thinking about the purpose for this. How does it impact us? How, how does this 
make life application for us because this is where the rubber starts meeting the road. Is it how can we apply systematic theology to our lives? What difference is it going to make? Systematic theology focuses on summarizing each doctrine as it should be understood by present-day Christians. Okay? Sometimes this means utilizing terms that are not specific to the Bible. We will use terms that you won't find in the Bible like incarnation, trinity, the deity of Christ. Those are not terms that you find spelled out in Scripture. But we all know as you've read the Bible through and studied the Bible that those concepts, those ideas, those doctrines are, are very much present in Scripture. And so systematic theology helps pull those things together and, and to put some sort of a caption over it so we can begin to understand it and sort it out. Defining systematic theology to include what the whole Bible teaches us today implies that application to life is a necessary part of the proper pursuit of systematic theology. This is a part of discipleship. You know, this is edification. Sir? Let me uh, share something I highlighted in the book. Okay. Um, studying systematic theology will help us grow as Christians. The more we know about God, about His Word, about His relationship to the world and mankind, the better we will trust Him, the more fully we will praise Him, and the more readily we will obey Him. Studying systematic theology rightly will make us more mature Christians. Sounds a whole lot like spiritual formation to me. That's exactly it. You know, it's, it's not something that we think about. When you, when you think about systematic theology, you're thinking about, well, you do that in seminary. That's what we sent you to school to do. Or, you know, that's what we expected you to learn when you were in school. And come. But it is a part of our discipleship. You know, one of the reasons that we, I mean, think about some of the, the challenges that are going on in our culture. And I'll just go ahead and dive into this now. Um, if you've been keeping up with the news, I mean, what, what are some of the highlights that you've seen out there? And, and I don't want to hear anything about Trump um, or, you know, anything inside the beltway is off limits tonight. So, but other things going on, important things. Anybody? You're intolerant. Particularly as it relates to your belief in God and the Bible. Right. And so it's, it's difficult for people in the marketplace to navigate through that without fear of perhaps losing their jobs. So how does systematic theology help us in a world like that? Or does it? Well, I think, I mean, first you have to recognize that if you're dealing with unbelievers, that they're already blinded to the truth. And so you have to be you have to be tolerant in the sense of recognizing that that's a reality, but yet being graceful enough to, to navigate through that in a winsome way. And okay, let me dr let me drill down a little further. Yeah. And how does systematic theology encourage and help us there? Well, I think, you know, one example would be if, um, if they rebut something that's been said or perhaps something that you may have said 
then in a very kind way you can rebut that uh, with the truth of the Bible uh, about the character and nature of God or the character or the, the reality of, of man's fallen state. Right. And so, For instance, spot on. But let's think specifically. You know, one of the one of the uh, chief mantras out in the culture by the unbeliever is that you know Christians are hypocrites, or they think you know God's a mean ogre sitting up there ready to zap people, um, you know, or that we don't love the unbeliever or things like that. So when we hear those kind of things, a lot of us just you know, take a lock, as Barney says. We, we zip it, and we don't argue with them because we feel like oh, the battle's already lost. But systematic theology can help you have an understanding that enables you to be a little more confident that you know, not because you know some, some formula or you have some you know, canned argument ready to spring on them, but you know what the Bible says about these things. So you can say, well, you know, if you don't mind, what you just said is not true statement. It's not an accurate statement. And if you're interested, I'd like to tell you why that's true. Well, most people, they've never had any real interaction with the Scripture. And everybody really, whether they want to admit it or not, most everybody is intrigued by truth. And everybody is really in pursuit of truth. Nobody likes to be lied to or feel like they're living a lie. They may you know, think they do, but when it comes right down to it, everybody wants to know the truth about stuff. So, you know, challenging them in that way, which is graceful, it is patient, it isn't argumentative, it's saying, you know, what you just said is not a true statement, and, and I'd be glad to show you in Scripture or explain to you from Scripture why that's true. Not my opinion, but what God says, you know. Systematic theology equips you to be able to do that in a reasonable way you know, uh, non-hateful, you know, loving way. Uh, other things. Let, let, me, let me share a couple things that, that have hit my radar <clears throat> just in the last um, few days. Um, the, uh, I don't know if uh, y'all have caught this one or not, but the, the Pope, this one says the Pope bans death penalty. Have you, have you heard that? Uh, this is a huge deal, you know, and it's it's gone. This was dated uh, August second. What's the day? Eighth. So this is almost a week ago, and it's it's getting a little play in some places, but it's pretty quiet. But listen, even people that that are adamantly opposed to the death penalty see the problem with what he just did. He just unraveled two thousand years of history and doctrine that the Catholic Church adheres to. They've always supported this. You go back to Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and read what he wrote about these things and the way people have... Well, I mean, the Bible does speak to capital punishment and our responsibility to defer to the, the civil government that God places over us to bring protection uh, to people. And when there is uh, no further means without letting blood to protect the public... Capital punishment is in order. That's and that's what the capital. I mean, the Catholic Church has believed and supported, even though some of them may say, "I don't like it. I think there should be another way." But we can't argue. This is what the Bible says. 
All right, so uh, that one just came out, and, and the Pope has essentially turned that on its head. He was um, speaking ex cathedra. <laughs> right. Speaking for God. That's exactly right. And that's why it's a big deal, is that he wasn't speaking his opinion. He actually changed the doctrine. He actually said the Bible and the church have been wrong for 2,000 years. He did. Yeah. So he's just unraveling everything. Let Let me give you a couple of highlights from this article, and then we'll move on to the next one. If the Pope is saying this is the uh, this writer is um, uh, Rod Dreher uh, from the AmericanConservative.com, and there were several articles I could have picked several, but this one was the longest one, so because it had a lot of comments on the back that I wanted to read. <clears throat> if the Pope is saying that capital punishment is always and intrinsically immoral, then he would be effectively saying, whether consciously or unconsciously, that previous popes, fathers, and doctors of the church, and even divinely inspired scripture are in error. If this, and this is a, you know, these guys that are writing these things are, you know, he may be writing at the American Conservative, but when's the last time you met a, a conservative a media member? Um, and they're all coming out and saying, you know, he's way off base on this. If this is what he is saying, then we, then he would be attempting to make known some new doctrine, which the First Vatican Council expressly forbids a pope from doing. Okay? So today there is no if about it. Pope Francis has said flat out that the death penalty is immoral and has ordered the catechism to be written to reflect this new teaching. As of this morning, the catechism now reads... Recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial has long considered an appropriate, was long considered an appropriate response to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of a very serious crime. In addition, just think about that statement for a few minutes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed which ensure the due protection of citizens but at the same time do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. So and here's what he says. This is kind of his big wrap-up. It seems to me that the Pope has crossed a bright line. He is denying for the first time in nearly two millennia of Catholic teaching and in direct contradiction to the fathers of the church that the state has the right to impose capital punishment. That's a meaningful difference from saying that the state has that right but shouldn't use it. If you disfavor the death penalty, understand what this means. This pope has claimed forthrightly that the Catholic Church taught error, but now at long last he has set the church straight from a traditional point of view, though this means that the pope is teaching error. So why is systematic theology important? Because this kind of stuff is happening and unfolding all around us. And if you're not careful, you go, well, I'm against the death penalty. Yay for the Pope. Way to go, big guy. And you could get caught up in that. I'm, this is not about the death penalty for me. This is about what the Pope <coughs> has put himself to do. Who said he's made himself into God? That's essentially what he said, is that you can't trust the Scripture. You can't trust all of the, all of the uh, patristic fathers, uh, the patristics of the, the early years of the church. You can't trust 
any of the popes all through the ages, I'm the one that finally got it right. Okay? That's what's going on out there. Now, this one. This one will turn your stomach. This was uh, from August 6th, which was the day before yesterday, by Charles Lane, uh, opinion writer at the Washington Post. Very liberal publication, okay? Don't know if you know this or not, but in 2012, Belgium uh, adopted a law making euthanasia legal, okay? 2014, they added to that euthanasia law that children could be euthanized. And here's the, the rationale behind that, that a child has the same rights as an adult. And if a child is suffering with some disease, doesn't have a, a good prognosis for the future, then that child has the capability of expressing a desire to die and should be honored. That's basically what they're saying. Now, since 2014, there have been no problems because nobody has acted on it until in the last two years. And in the last two years, there have been three kids that have been euthanized, a 17-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. Get your mind around that. Now, is this, Jerry, is this Belgium only or the UCC? This is Belgium. <coughs> Here's what he says. Deliberately taking a small child's life is unlawful everywhere in the world, even when the child is terminally ill and asks the doctor to end his or her suffering once and for all. There is an exception to this rule, Belgium. 2014, that country amended its law on euthanasia, already one of the most permissive in the world, authorizing doctors to terminate the life of a child at any age, at any age who makes the request. For a year after the law passed, no one acted on it. Now, however, euthanasia for children in Belgium is no longer just a theoretical possibility. Between January 1st, 2016 and December 31st, 2017, Belgian physicians gave lethal injections to three children under 18, according to a July 17 report from the commission that regulates euthanasia in Belgium. The oldest of the three was 17. Belgium was not unique since the Netherlands permits euthanasia for children over 12. Belgian doctors, however, also ended the lives of a 9-year-old and an 11-year-old. These were the first under 12 cases anywhere. And that came, that came directly from the Belgian Commission. Now, you read on in the article and you get over here toward uh, the latter stages of it and you find that <clears throat> this statement. Most of Belgium's 4,337 euthanasias in 2016 and 17 involved adults with cancer. 4,337 people who were euthanized in 2016, 2017, and now they've added three children. You know, I get the suffering angle of this, and nobody, nobody wants to suffer. None of us want to suffer. There, there are some hard issues in this, okay? That's why systematic theology our beliefs are so important because in the midst of the emotion and the pain and the suffering of something, it's easy to do what's expedient in the moment, but may be grossly immoral. <clears throat> right? So, you know, when, when Christians, and, and you know, as this continues to, I mean, we, we, it's already making its inroads into our nation, right? I mean, uh, Kevorkian... You know, we, we've had that 
go down that path already. So we know that it's coming. And we're already guilty, you know, in, in a, a one of the most heinous things, I think, in, in history with millions upon millions of abortions. Lives cut short. And, and very few of them were for medical reasons, for safety, for mothers. It's all about convenience. Um, these things are things that can be twisted and turned to sound compassionate and sound necessary. And, and we are, you know, we really are, human beings really are a herd mentality. You know, we follow the herd, don't we? If one does it, you know, on social media, everybody will be doing it. If one person stands up, one celebrity stands up and says, this is the way it ought to be, masses will follow and say, that's right, that's right, you know, go, go for it. Um, this is why a systematic theology Understanding what God teaches in His Word and what He says about these things is so critical and important for us. Um, you know, it's exciting to me. We were having this discussion over the table at, at dinner about, you know, our kids not uh, getting taught the right things. And I said, not at this church. That's not true. You know, they're studying the same thing tonight that you're studying. Luke will have his own slant, but he's following the same guidelines we are. And our kids, those who hang in there, they're going to come out of here knowing what the Bible teaches and what God says about these things. They'll still have to make up their mind if they're going to adhere to it and stand on it. But we're not going to drop the ball on making them aware of what God has said. And we as adults have the responsibility to know it ourselves so that we can stand where we need to stand and where we can speak up in this culture of you know, mass winds howling all around us, telling us something different, right? So that's the case I'm making, that this is important, okay? And, and you, never, you never get to the end of it, you know? You never get to a point where you've got it all mastered. There's always something new to learn, and the issues are changing. The issues are changing. We've all seen someone who is suffering greatly with a terminal disease. You know, I'll never forget... Um, Merrill, um, Pierce, Pierce. Uh, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, Merrill, for those of you that may have known him when he was healthy, was a raw bone, man's man, you know. And, and that disease took him down to nothing to where he couldn't move, he couldn't swallow, he, you know, everything, he was dependent upon everything. He, he sat and communicated by, you know, moving something around his eye and the computer would, uh, he could do letters that way and it was painstakingly slow, his communication. And, and it, was, it was just the most heart-rending thing I've ever seen. But it's still not in our purview, according to the scripture, to decide when that life needs to end or when God may move in and do something miraculous, you know? So... These things are important that we have this, this background, this foundation, so we can, uh, we can um, make good decisions on those things. All right. Um, we're running out of time, so let me just try to wrap this up. Um, 
So if we already use a systematic theology in our conversation, why do we need to study? Oh, I've given you the cultural things, but let me just give you several reasons here. First, it treats biblical topics in a carefully organized way to guarantee that all the, the important topics will receive thorough consideration. This keeps us from uh, having uh, wild distortions or misunderstandings about things. Secondly, it treats topics in, in much more detail than most Christians do, even in church life. Very few churches spend much time. You know, we, we uh, in, in church circles, I hear people talk all the time about, boy, we need a revival. We need a revival. We, we need to get revived. And, and none of us would deny that. But a revival is something that God gives. Okay? It's just like faith. God gives it. You know, we don't work it up. We, we try. You know, Charles Finney put us on a path of revivalism where we did all these things where we manipulated people's emotions and we produced numbers or results that we thought were authentic and, and much of the time it, it didn't lead to anything. So we can't produce those things. It's something that God gives. But here's what we do know. History has shown that when a movement of God has occurred among His people, you know what the common denominator always has been? A strong commitment and study of, of biblical doctrine that the church has given itself over to getting into the biblical doctrine of God's word and when they do that what happens well you begin to see who God really is you learn about God and you understand what sin is and how we're separated <laughs> from him and the spirit of God moves in that in a great way uh, what we spend our times most of the time in churches is doing therapy from the pulpit right we're trying to help everybody be better sinners Essentially, okay, you, you, you get that, you know, right. Our lives are broken. We need to know how to be better parents. Yeah, okay. But as long as you're doing it in man's strength, see, you're doing it in your brokenness. You know, we don't need therapy about how to be better at being broken. We need the only thing that can change that brokenness, and that's Christ. Okay, it treats topics in much more detail than most Christians will. It encourages and enables a more accurate understanding of biblical teachings. And a study of this nature is exhaustive in its look at each topic. So nothing gets left out. And no, you know, you don't just look at a few verses and say, okay, well, that's what the Bible says about this. No, you exhaust them all. If it's in the Bible, you, you scour them out. And look, that's what systematic theology does. Uh, I gave you a... Um, uh, a copy on that sheet with the um, the syllabus, the, the schedule. On the back side, there are the doctrines that we'll be covering, the, the outline of those doctrines. And uh, it's not anything that's going to stun you. Um, basic reason we, we should do this is to obey Christ's teaching. Remember what he said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20? He told us to go and make disciples, but what else did he say? What's the second part of that? Teaching them, to obey. Teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. So this is, this is supporting and encouraging and, and equipping us to do just that. Uh, it provides benefits to our lives, helps us to overcome our wrong ideas, prepares us to make better decisions when future questions arise. Systematic theology helps us grow as Christians, as David mentioned earlier. And um, I'm going to stop there. That's it. Any questions? Comments? Very good course of study.
Well, it's, yeah, the, the topic's really good. The subject matter's good. I think that there are two words up there that stand out for me. One is patient and graceful. In our presentation, John Stott talked about the person who knows all of this theology. Looks like a tadpole with a giant head. But he has no love. Right. No grace. Yeah. And I don't think anybody wants to grow tadpoles. No. No, you're absolutely right. So talk it up. Plenty of time to check in. Somebody ask if you, you know, essentially if you miss one. Look, if you get the book, you can follow up on it yourself and read the one you miss. If this works and we can get these up on the website um, after recording them, you can follow along, go back and listen and follow up on it and, and get what you missed. And uh, so that makes it easy to stay engaged so that if you miss one or two, then you don't feel like, okay, I'm just going to give it up, all right? And remember, each week's a separate doctrine. So, okay, if you miss one or two because of unforeseen scheduling conflicts or sickness or whatever, you know, okay, you just missed those two doctrines. You know, don't abandon the rest of them. You can come back and circle back and get those. But each one can stand alone is what I'm saying. All right? Good. That's all I got. <laughs>